The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 6 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC6. This is Secret Church 6, Episode 7. Third scene, turn the diamond, the cry of dereliction. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that scene? In the middle of the day, darkness sweeps over the entire land. And for three hours, it's dark. Even a borrow from the picture we just saw. Jesus is not enduring wrath for a moment, for hours. And darkness comes over, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Key theme, reconciliation. Reconciliation. And the truth here is that Jesus suffered our separation. Here's the substitute. He suffered separation for us instead of us. Reconciliation. In our sin, we are separated from God as his enemies. Enemies. Enmity toward God. Friends of the world, James 4 says. So whose side is the enmity on? Is it on our side or on God's side? And the answer seems to be in Scripture both. Man is hostile to God. Romans 1 at the end says we are God-haters. Sinful mind, sinful man is hostile to God, Romans 8. At the same time, God is hostile to man, as we've seen in the sense that his wrath rests on sinners. So in our sin, we're separated from God as enemies. Through our substitute, because of our substitute, we are reconciled to God as his friends. Two key texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Later it says, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteous of God. And then Romans 5, really all the way through verse 11 God demonstrates his love for us, in this, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For which when we were enemies of God, God sent his son. How much more, having been saved, will we be saved through his life? That's Romans 5, 9 through 11. So the picture here is a substitute who reconciles us to God as his friends, uh, as friends of God. Once enemies, now friends, the difference being a substitute. How does that work and how does that relate to this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, think about what's going on on the cross there when he says that. What is the meaning of those words? First, what it's not. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not a cry of unbelief. Some have said, much like we saw Jesus pictured almost as a coward in the Garden of Gethsemane, that somehow in this moment of supreme self-sacrifice, that Jesus 
lacks faith or trust in the Father. And that's not at all what's going on here. Jesus has said he knows where he's going. I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. He's confident. It's not a cry of unbelief. It's also not a cry of confusion. Jesus is not wondering, why am I dying? Why is this happening? He had said this was going to happen. Not a cry of confusion. Not a cry of despair either. What does Hebrews 12, 2 say? Fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what set before him? Joy set before him endured the cross. He'd said to his disciples where he's going, what he's doing. In Matthew chapter 27 there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. And we see, and we're going to look at that psalm, but at the very end of that psalm, the psalmist who has cried cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, comes to the conclusion that God has not despised or disdained him, not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So there's, it's not a cry of unbelief, confusion, despair. What is it a cry of then? I would encourage us to look at this cry from the cross through three different lenses. One, a cry of spiritual anguish. He quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, verse 1. You see it listed there. In light of what we just saw, Christ is experiencing the depth of God's wrath. If you think about it, he was sweating blood at the anticipation of it. What must it have been like for the holy God of the universe in the flesh to experience the full weight of wrath, infinite wrath towards sin? So there's spiritual anguish, overwhelmed by the judgment of sin poured out on him in that moment. Second, a cry of relational alienation. There was a a real separation from the Father, in a sense, which we're going to talk about in a second. We'll come back to that. And it's depicted in the darkness, this three hours of darkness. And don't don't misunderstand this picture. Some preachers would said, well, God looked down and could not bear to see what the soldiers were doing to his son, so he turned away. Absolutely not. God looked down and could not bear to see your sin and my sin on his son. And because of our sin, he turned away. Our sin thrust on his son. Cry of relational alienation, alienated by the father and alienated by men. There's parallels here between Psalm 22 and, and, and the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. You look in Psalm 22, verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then you see the picture in Matthew 27. Those who passed by him hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it, save yourself. Come down if you're the son of God. You see these parallels. You can go back through and look through them. What we've got is the gospel accounts of Jesus dying on the cross reflecting the cries of the psalmist in Psalm 22, alienated by those he loved. Peter, disciples, picture of alienation from father and men in very real ways. Spiritual anguish, relational alienation, and third, physical agony. We're talking about the theological mysteries here and the truths, but we cannot, we can't overlook the physical picture. I think we have a tendency, a dangerous tendency, tendency to glamorize the physical picture. That's what we talk about all the time when we talk about the cross, we talk about all the physical facets of suffering. 
And I think we can over-glamorize some of those things, but they are still realities. He was nailed, his feet, his hands to a cross with a crown of thorns thus through his head. Death by crucifixion was basically death by brutal suffocation. Because in order to breathe, you would have to press up on feet that had nails run into them and press out on arms that had nails thrust, uh, on hands that had nails thrust into them. And you would lift up to try to gasp for breath. And in the process, your back, scourged by what had been done before, would scrape along that cross. That, that was to breathe. And this is what our Savior was experiencing. And so it was all spiritual anguish, an ultimate spiritual anguish, but relational alienation and physical agony. That was the separation on the cross. Now, how does that provide salvation? Salvation from the curse. Here's the picture of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. I love what William Temple said. He said, all is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. God is the giver of the gospel. He's the one doing the reconciling. Whenever you see this word reconciled in the New Testament, it's either talking about God is the subject, God is reconciling, or if it's talking about us, it's used in the passive form. We are being reconciled. We have been reconciled. God is the subject. We're not reconciling ourselves to God. You don't see that in Scripture. You see God reconciling himself to us. You see us being reconciled by God. He's the giver of the gospel. Second, he's the gift of the gospel. He is reconciling us to himself. This is why we can't, when we talk about evangelism of the gospel, talk about, well, believe in Christ and you get forgiveness of your sins and you get eternal life and you get your best life and you get all of these things. No. You come to Christ and you get God. And all of these things flow from God, but we have taken God himself out of how we preach the cross and the gospel and offered his gifts instead. He's reconciling us to himself and he is the supreme treasure. Not his gifts. God is the treasure that is bought for us. We are being reconciled to a person, to God. He's the gift of the gospel and he's the goal of the gospel. God's designed it this whole way so that the one who gives the grace gets the glory. And if we add anything to this picture, then that is credit to us. And that is not the design of the cross. And it's not the design of the gospel. God's the author of reconciliation. Christ is the agent of reconciliation. He's the one who makes it possible, who reconciles man to God. And this is where Galatians chapter 3 comes in. Key text. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.10 tells us we were under the curse of God's law. Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's a quotation directly from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And the picture is, all who do not obey the law of God fully are under a curse. Fully. God's law is not a religious cafeteria where you pick this and this and this and this and you leave out this and this and this and you decide what works best for you. It's not the way God law, God's law works. You disobey at one point, you disobey the whole deal. 
And you're under a curse because of that. That's when you go back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you see blessings and curses. Curses the man who does this. Curses the man who does this. Curses the man who does that. Blesses the man who does this or that. That's what Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is all about. Now, when you think about this picture of blessing and curse, follow with me here. Blessing and curse. Blessing. To be blessed is to experience the favorable presence of God. To be blessed is to experience the favorable presence of God. Numbers chapter 26, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Great picture of that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. To have the face of God turn towards you. This was blessing. This was the beautiful vision of the face of God. That's the picture. Blessing. What great imagery there. And blessing all throughout the Old Testament was the reward for obedience. Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if, key word, if you obey the Lord your God. Blessing to experience the favorable presence of God. This is the reward for obedience because you're walking with God. On the other hand, curse. Curse is to be cut off from the favorable presence of God. The curse is the opposite of blessing. So what it means to be cursed, instead of God turning his face towards you, it's God turning his back towards you and his face away from you, cut off from the light of his favorable presence. This is what God said in Exodus 33. He said to a people in sin, he said, if I go with you, I will destroy you on the way. You will have not my favorable presence with you. It's the picture we see in 2 Corinthians 2 Kings 23 and 24. Now the reason, the reason I'm saying favorable presence of God here is because I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding here. The reality is most of the time when we see in Scripture the presence of God, it is a picture of the blessing of God. It is a picture of the favor of His presence. And so when we talk about the presence of God, we talk about it in, in a favorable sense. We just associate the two together. However, we need to realize God is omnipresent, right? And so when we talk about being cast out of his presence, how is that really possible? It's not. He's present everywhere. And so when we say somebody's cast out of his presence, then what we're talking about is how they're experiencing the not favorable presence of God, but it's a picture of curse unfavorable presence. And that's the picture God said to his people in Exodus 33. If my presence is with you, I will destroy you on the way. God with us is not always a good thing. See this. Because God, think about, think about eternal damnation. Think about hell. Is God present? If we answer no, then he is not omnipresent. Hell is a demonstration of the divine wrath of God and judgment of God. There's a re- very real sense of his presence. Now, it's, it's being cast out of his presence in the sense that it's being cursed, but not complete. That's why we're talking about favorable presence. Picture here is to be cursed is to mean not that God's presence is completely gone, but that his back is turned toward from you and his curse is upon you. The curse is upon you, and that's the recompense for disobedience. If you do not obey the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 28, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. 
In other words, you will see his presence revealed in darkness. And now we're getting to the heart of what's going on on the cross. We are under the curse of God's law. We deserve the darkness of his presence, his curse toward us, cast out from the favor of his presence. And what happened at the cross is Christ came under the cross of God's judgment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Quoting there from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Catch this. It just so happened that Christ died at a time when the Jewish people were under Roman authority. Romans who had devised crucifixion. Jesus was not stoned to death. He died on a tree for a reason, to give us picture of the curse of God. I've got Hebrews 13 scriptures listed through there because Jesus was cut off from God's favorable presence. Hebrews 13 talks about how he died outside the camp. And you look in Leviticus and you see outside the camp represents the sins of the people and the uncleanness of the people. If you had an infectious disease, you went outside the camp. If you were going to be stoned for blaspheming, Leviticus 24, you went outside the camp. And this is where Jesus went. It is a picture of him experiencing the curse cut off from God's favorable presence and Jesus being given the full recompense of our disobedience. Now feel the weight of 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The curse do our sin put on his son. I love what Luther said. Our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law so that we could, we could never be delivered from it by our own power, Listen to this, sent his only son in the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter that deny her, Paul that persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor, David that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged on the cross. And briefly, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them all. This is the picture. He took the curse completely for us so that we would become. Now, be careful because this is where we have to guard in our thinking about salvation, of thinking about what we do in order to be saved. Because the reality is, it is based, salvation is based completely on what Christ has done. And we are simply the acceptors of reconciliation. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here's the reality. We cannot remove the curse. We cannot remove the curse. There is no box we can check, no aisle we can walk, no things we can do, no routine we can keep in order to remove the curse from us. We can only receive the cross. We've got three options here. Every single one of us in this room, three options. Number one, we can ignore the curse. We can pretend like it's not there. We can pretend like we are not cursed before God. And we can live in a fantasy world that denies the penalty due our sin. Second, and this is where so many of us fall. And I, I'm convinced there are many around this room that probably 
find themselves here. Second, we can work to overcome the curse. We can go to church and we can do our best and we can pray and we can read the Bible and we can try to check off all the boxes that we know we're supposed to check off and we can find ourselves falling over and over again but trying harder the next time and trying harder the next time and feeling condemned and feeling like we just can't get it done but trying harder and harder and harder and harder. And we can work to overcome the curse. If you find yourself there or the first one, my exhortation to you is to take the third option. The third option is not to ignore the curse or to work to overcome the curse. Third option, embrace the curse. Embrace it. Say, yes, I stand condemned before God and there is nothing I can do. Embrace the curse and run to the cross and find that he has taken the curse for you. And therefore, you don't need to try harder next time because he has already taken. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He suffered separation so that you can simply receive the cross. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's the picture. God turns darkness, curse, recompense for disobedience put on him instead of us in order that we might be reconciled to God. We who were once enemies, now friends. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.